Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, meteorologist Richard Lindzen discusses climate change. David Bernstein defends economic liberty. Stanley Kober discusses the importance of the Arab awakening. And Ted Olson, David Boyas, and Cato's Bob Levy talk about marriage equality. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As we record this in June of 2011, it was 40 years ago that President Richard Nixon first uttered the term war on drugs. This was after some legislation had passed, but in coining that term, he sort of kicked off 40 years of, well, lots of different things. I'm talking today with Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice and editor of the volume In the Name of Justice, and Ian Vasquez, director of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, both at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Tim, to start with you, when President Nixon said the term war on drugs, there was already a lot of legislation that had prohibited various substances, and and this was just sort of, uh, I guess, a term of art. That's right. I mean, some of the states around the turn of the century started to pass criminal laws against substances like marijuana, and the first federal laws came on the books around 1910, between 1910 and 1920. So they started off as tax laws. It wasn't a major policy push until President Nixon came into office during the period of 1970, this time of year in June of 1971, when he held a major press conference and said, that drug abuse and drug addiction is public enemy number one. And he asked Congress for a major initiative. Back then, it, it seems a pittance now, but he asked for $100 million to launch a new federal effort declaring war on drugs. And that was really the first major escalation of what we've kind of been used to over the past 40 years of the federal government waging a war on drug users. Now, $100 million in 1971, what are we spending today, state and local and federal government? We've gone from $100 million at the federal level to spending approximately $20 billion per year. That's just at the federal level. If you include all of the money that the state and local governments are spending on police, prosecutors, and courthouses and their effort to fight drugs, then you would probably add another $20 billion. So it's about $40 billion per year. Now, Jeffrey Myron, uh, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor at uh, Harvard University, recently produced a report, The Budgetary Impact of Ending Drug Prohibition. Basically, what was there? We asked Jeff, because states are under increasing budgetary pressure and they're looking at re-examining their criminal justice system and the amount of money that they're spending on prisons, we asked Jeff Myron, the economist at Harvard and senior fellow at Cato, to just focus on this budgetary aspect of the drug war. And we wanted him to come up with very conservative estimates on what taxpayers could save if we ended the war on drugs. So what he came up with is he concluded that we could basically, if we stopped spending money on the drug war, we would save about $42 billion. And then if the government were to tax substances like marijuana and cocaine, basically around the same rates that the government currently taxes alcohol and cigarettes, then he estimated that the government would be taking in about $46 billion in revenue. So the overall budgetary impact of ending the drug war, according to Jeff Myron's estimates, is that we would improve our budgetary situation overall $88 billion per year. Now, Jeff was really reluctant to do this study because he said there's so many reasons to end the drug war, its impact on our civil liberties, the lives ruined by arrests and people getting criminal records and so on. But we want, because of the budgetary issues are in the news, we had to drag Jeff into doing this budgetary study. But he said, out of all the reasons to end the drug war, the budgetary numbers are really something like uh, reason number 22. Well, but in Washington, as I assume is the case in state capitals across the United States, good numbers beat bad numbers and bad numbers beat no numbers at all. That's right. The war on drugs as a term has given the government license to engage in a lot of activities that are typically reserved for engagements involving the military. And a lot of that type of activity seems to have seeped into domestic 
law enforcement. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. That's one of the things we've highlighted in our work at Cato is uh, the growing militarization of police tactics. But what we mean by that is that our police officers are increasingly wearing military garb, they're carrying military-type weaponry like automatic weapons. They're flak jackets, helmets, military boots. They're training alongside members of our special forces. And we all think that this has a terrible impact on the culture of what a police department should be because although the military and police, they wear uniforms and carry weapons, that's really where the similarities end. The military's job is to go off and destroy enemy forces. They're not dealing with people who have constitutional rights. So the police have a very different mission. Their mission is to use the absolute minimum amount of force that's necessary to bring a suspect into a court of law where we can sort out whether or not he's even guilty of the offense. But when we have our police officers dressing up like soldiers and being trained along our military people, they lose sight of this. And there's just unnecessary confrontations which lead to unnecessary shootings and killings. And we've documented this in several Cato studies. And as the military, as we are involved in two and a half wars, I suppose, right now, a lot of these young men and women coming back will be police officers and will walk into a culture where, you know, perhaps their behavior is not expected to change as much as it should. Yes, that's right. I mean, there are a lot of people that make that transition from the military into police departments. And again, when they walk into a culture where they're executing a search warrant and they're also using these flashbang grenades, they're tossing these things into homes without really adequate investigation beforehand to see if there's children in the house, to double check if they've even got the right address, to see if there's elderly people, to see if there's a language barrier, to see if the people, you know, inside even understand, you know, police search warrant. They may not understand that. And that when they come in in the middle of the night, the homeowners are put in the position of thinking that, hey, you know, who would be breaking down my front door at whatever, 5 o'clock in the morning or 12 midnight, they think they're about to be burglarized, their lives are about to be in danger. They sometimes get their weapons and then there's an unnecessary shootout between the police and civilians. Ian Vasquez, when we talk about the war on drugs, emphasis on war, this means the United States exerting all kinds of pressure internationally. What has the war on drugs done to U.S. relationships with Latin America, particularly Mexico and Afghanistan and other countries? Well, we now have decades of experience in the international part of the war on drugs, and it has utterly failed to reduce production of drugs or their flow into consuming countries like the United States, but it has created tremendous social and political problems in countries like Colombia, in the slums of Brazil, and now we are seeing it in Mexico with this huge upsurge in violence, which is a direct result of the war on drugs. And so what we're seeing is a policy that goes completely counter to legitimate U.S. foreign policy goals in the region of promoting civil society and democracy because of the effects of prohibition, which is to encourage violence, encourage corruption, and to undermine those institutions of civil society that presumably the United States wants to promote in Mexico, other parts of Latin America, and elsewhere. Now, with regard specifically to Afghanistan, we've had DEA agents working with our military in that country. Here's an example where drug policy is undermining another policy, which is the war on terror in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, because the drug war itself is helping to push up prices of opium. And to the extent that the United States and the other international forces there try to eradicate or go after the production of drugs there, it's actually going after a huge portion of the population. My colleague Ted Carpenter estimates that maybe up to 30% of the, the population in Afghanistan benefits directly from opium production, maybe up to half of the GDP of the country is based on that. So when you're asking Afghanistan to fight against that, you're really asking them to do the impossible. And you're also asking the Karzai government to go after some of its allies. The warlords there that uh, it is allied with also depend very much on that uh, drug trade. So a better policy would be to just fight the uh, war on terror 
and leave the war on drugs behind. After all, this policy is actually helping to finance insurgencies like the Taliban and al-Qaeda because they benefit directly from the drug trade by taxing it and by getting involved in it. And as our colleague David Ritgers has pointed out on several times, uh, he served in Afghanistan. He's pointed out several times one of the quickest ways to create an insurgent is to destroy his livelihood. And that's what a lot of our military uh, men and women are being asked to do. With regard to decriminalization, potential policies uh, that the United States could adopt, Glenn Greenwald wrote a report for the Cato Institute examining the experience in Portugal with drug decriminalization. And uh, Tim, what did he find? Well, his findings were pretty shocking to some establishment people because one of the longstanding objections to ending the drug war was that if you remove the criminal sanction, then you'll see a spike in drug use and then there will be a public health crisis and then it will be too late to go back. So that has been the longstanding objection. So when we found out that Portugal had decriminalized criminalized all drugs, not just marijuana, but all drugs, we decided that it would make sense after a few years to have some field research done to go see what the results were. And so we sent Glenn Greenwald to Portugal because he was fluent in Portuguese. He was a lawyer. He knew research and has wrote, written some several best-selling books. So he was like the ideal person to go and study this policy for us. And what he found out was that there was no spike in drug use. So the doomsayers turned out to be wrong. And he also talked to a lot of the players over there, people in the drug policymaking community, government officials, police officials, and health officials. And he found that there was really no controversy in Portugal. It was controversial at the time. A lot of people said, no, we're making a big mistake. There was going to be this spike in drug use. But as the years passed, that prediction did not come true. And so public opinion has swung over in favor of this policy. There's no movement to say, hey, we made a mistake. We need to go back. So the politics have come over to support the policy. And a lot of other countries countries, people who are involved in drug policy in other European countries are now contacting people in Portugal. They want to know how they did it, how their policy works, and they're beginning to study Portugal and move in that direction. And in some drug categories in Portugal, drug use has gone down. For example, heroin use has actually gone down. Now, Ian, one of the reports that cited Glenn Greenwald's report is a very recent piece put out by several former heads of state, in fact, one current head of state describing what they recommend in terms of the war on drugs. And I guess, was this the first time that legalization was a mentioned as a legitimate policy alternative? The Global Drug Commission uh, report came out uh, just a few weeks ago, and it's made up of three ex-presidents from Latin America, from Brazil, Colombia, and from Mexico, and uh, the current uh, sitting prime minister of Greece, George Pepindrou, and several other notable leaders in Latin America, like uh, Nobel laureate Mario Vargas Llosa from Peru. And it's, it's no wonder that they would be putting out a report like this. It's actually the second uh, report that this commission puts out, but it's the first that calls for a serious consideration of legalization. The first report that they put out a couple of years ago actually called for a rethink in, in drug policy and to break the taboo that prohibition as it is formulated today is the right way to go. But now they're actually citing cases like the Cato Institute study on Portugal and others where countries have tried different approaches to support the idea that legalization should be considered. Now, in the struggle over terminology here, when we talk about decriminalization, we're not talking about legalization. And when it comes to violence coming from the South along these drug routes into the United States, the U.S. is the nation consuming a lot of these drugs, but probably a huge share. What does that distinction mean between decriminalization and legalization? Decriminalization means that the use of drugs will no longer be treated as a crime, but the trafficking and the production of drugs will be. And I think, that, of course, that would be a step in the right direction, but it's not enough particularly because it still makes the production and trafficking of drugs a crime. And that creates that black market premium that is the source of all the troubles, the violence, the corruption, the undermining of institutions from the media to local organizations that we are seeing in Mexico and throughout the region. So until and unless uh, the United States and uh, other countries actually legalize drugs, I think we'll still see this problem. So the fights over drug territory, the ability to deliver to this or that group inside the United States, there are still these, 
I guess, insecure property rights when it comes to establishing this business that causes a lot of this violence. That's right. The problems would still exist in the United States and in the producing countries. All right. So, Tim, one of the issues that you look at that relates strongly to the war on drugs are American prisons. Can you give us just a broad brush of what the drug war has done to criminal justice in the United States? Well, it's practically destroyed our criminal justice system because the underlying premise of the war on drugs was that if you make it a criminal sanction and you make, you know, threaten people with jail, the idea was that you're just going to scare people so they're going to stop using drugs. That was the underlying premise, but it's utterly failed in practice. Millions and millions of people use drugs every single year. There's a thriving black market out there. So what we've seen is that the amount of money that the government is pouring into enforcement, I mean, this this is if you ask like what's the effect of the drug war, we have got a lot more policemen arresting a lot of people, putting a lot of people through the prosecution in the courts and we're putting a lot of people in prison. We've got about two and a half million people in prison in the United States right now. Millions more people are on probation and parole. Mass incarceration has been getting a lot of publicity in the United States for the past two or three years because we've got 5% of the world's population, but we've got 25% of the world's prisoners, people who are locked up. So that's a shocking figure. We're locking up a lot of people. During the 1990s, we were building on average one prison a week. You know, it took us 200 years to lock up 1 million prisoners, and then it just took us about 10 or 12 years to lock up the second million. Now we've kind of reached the end of that process. There's just no more political support towards building more prisons. Our prisons are overflowing with prisons. As fast as we've built them, they've filled up. And so now we've the states are facing this budget crisis. Our prisons are overflowing, but there's no money to build any more prisons. So the budgetary pressures that the state policymakers are feeling right now. This is what's altering the policy environment in the United States towards drugs now is that this is what I've been telling reporters who are asking me, you know, why is California considering an initiative to legalize marijuana? Why are we seeing more bills to lighten the penalties for marijuana and so forth? It's because it used to be anybody who proposed legalization would hurt them politically. But now the budget thing is so bad that Cutting other programs is more painful for the politicians than talking about legalization. So we're seeing more and more reform talk at the state and local level. It hasn't reached up to the federal level yet, but it's this overcrowding prisons and the budgetary pressures that are changing the policy dynamic in the U.S. If it has been impossible to win the war on drugs in the U.S., it is even more so in Latin America where you don't have a tradition of the rule of law. You have governments that are much more incompetent and with huge uh, governance problems. The United States, through its drug war, is actually asking these countries to do the impossible, which is to, to wage this war on drugs. But the effects have been devastating. We've already seen how just uh, since the end of 2006, when President Calderón in Mexico declared an all-out war on drug trafficking, drug-related deaths have risen to about 40,000 dramatically in Mexico. And the drug war there has pushed the drug traffickers into Central America. Countries in that region have made substantial progress in terms of democratization and market reforms. And now this drug war is undermining that progress by weakening civil society and law enforcement and so on over there. So we're seeing a whole region that has made progress being undermined by the war on drugs. You go to Mexico today, and it looks like what other Latin American countries looked like in previous decades. You see the militarization of Mexico. This is a shock to many of us who have been going to Mexico for years. Mexico is a country that has distinguished itself from the rest of Latin America for at least 70 or 80 years for not being a militarized country, for being stable. And the drug war has changed that. There is a parallel here with what you're talking about, Tim, with regard to budgets, and that is the end of prohibition in terms of the uh, need for revenue that the states would like to devote to other things. Uh, prohibition seemed like uh, something that sort of had to come to an end in, in order, at least in part, to accommodate the demand for revenue. That's right. When you look at the way in which we got out from under alcohol prohibition, one of the first things that happened was the states stopped participating in the enforcement. Some of the states, including New York, led the way by saying like, look, if the federal government, if you want to chase these bootleggers and spend money on enforcement, 
you go right ahead. But from now on, our state and local police are not going to spend any more time on this alcohol enforcement thing. And that's what we're beginning to see here in the United States finally on the drug issue. It's very interesting. We're seeing the policy begin to unravel finally after years and decades of escalation. You're seeing states like California and these other states begin to say, we're not going to spend any more money uh, on marijuana enforcement. And as Ian was saying, we're seeing these other countries around the world, Portugal and other Latin American countries beginning to tell the U.S., your approach is wrong. We want to do it another way. So we're seeing the pressure on the international front and at the state and local level beginning to say no to the drug war. So the policy is finally beginning to change. One of the reasons there's a rethink in the United States is precisely because of the failure of the drug war in Mexico and the upsurge in violence in a country that is, for obvious reasons, so important to the United States. This kind of thing has been happening for decades in places like Colombia and Peru and elsewhere. But those countries just don't have the same level of importance to the United States, and, and this can no longer be ignored by policymakers in Washington. All right, gentlemen, we will leave it there. If you want uh, more information on uh, the war on drugs, its many failures, you can read more at Cato.org. Despite consistent evidence that climate change does not portend an apocalyptic future, global warming alarmism is invading nearly every aspect of our lives. Richard Lindzen, the Alfred P. Sloan Professor of Meteorology at MIT, discussed several aspects of the climate science debate at a Cato Institute forum in May. Over the last 20 years or longer, I've looked at this issue and I find people focusing on the temperature record and arguing, as he says, dueling scientists, is this the peak year, is this, and it differs by 0.05 degrees. And this is stupid. I mean, there's no question. What's the purpose of that argument? And I've personally reached the conclusion it is to obscure the issue. In the book, Climate Coup, Justice Stevens is quoted. A well-documented rise in global temperatures has coincided with a significant increase in the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Respected scientists believe the two trends are related. And this was enough for the Supreme Court to legislate that this was a danger to human health and welfare. This makes no sense. The IPC statement, see, statement that Bob mentioned, man's emissions are likely responsible for most warming in the past 50 years. You have to understand something about it. That's treated as the main statement, but it isn't. There's nothing alarming in that statement. That statement is completely compatible with there being no problem at all. So the question is, what would be a better statement? Because as Bob pointed out, you can show simulations of the leveling off the temperature, you can do all those things, you can get models all to agree with what happened in the last 50 years. The claim of the IPCC is they couldn't do it without man's impact. That's a phony issue. Lots of people have been able to do it with Pacific Decadal Oscillation, Atlantic Multidecadal. But let's go back to that statement a little bit more. How could it be rephrased to make clearer what has happened, since it is the models that are the basis for alarm? Well, you could equally accurately say that man's emissions have caused two to five times the warming of the past 50 years with some unknown factor euphemistically referred to as aerosols canceling the discrepancy. Now I say unknown factor for a very simple reason, as Jeff Keel at NCAR points out, as Steve Schwartz, Rhoda, all the aerosol people point out, every model uses a different correction for aerosols in order to come to fit and disguise the fact that they're predicting vastly more warming than we've seen. You know, you often hear the issue of doubling CO2, the IPCC numbers for the anthropogenic contribution to the infrared, the greenhouse effect, 
are already 80% of a doubling of CO2. So the statement, as I've rephrased it, is hardly as compelling as Justice Stevens thinks it is. Why is it that the issue is presented in a way that disguises that? And that has been one of the things that leaves me suspicious. The issue of the temperature record itself, you know, has it gone up, has it gone down, is it a peak, disguises, if you think about it a little, the fact that the temperature change has been small. I hate to waste 12 minutes on a joke, but there's an old joke in the Middle East about in the time of the Ottoman Sultan there was a jester, Jufar, and he constantly was entering the border of Jerusalem with his donkey, and it was packed, and the guards were always looking for what he was smuggling, and they never found anything. Years later, the sheriff of Jerusalem is dining with Jufar and says, I know you were smuggling. What were you smuggling? The answer is, smuggling donkeys. You know, we get a little bit sillier Kevin Trenberth has recently decided that the null hypothesis in climate should be that man is causing catastrophic change and anyone who doubts this should have to prove it. What can I say? It is a subject that has been misrepresented. It's presented as though it's concrete. And when they ask for agreement, the agreement is always on the trivial issues where everyone does agree. No one argues that climate doesn't change. Nobody argues that man won't have some effect. In science, the question is always how much, and that's treated as a peripheral issue. No Supreme Court decision concerning economic liberty has been more emblematic of the alleged errors of the old pre-New Deal court then Lochner v. New York, decided in 1905. The case upheld contractual freedom against a New York statute that limited the hours that bakers might work. And though it was reviled by liberals and conservatives alike, the history of that case is still being written. George Mason University law professor David Bernstein is author of the new book Rehabilitating Lochner, Defending Individual Rights Against Progressive Reform, he discussed Lochner at a forum for the book held in May. My book seeks to dispel a lot of the historical myths that have developed over the last century or so about Lochner and other liberty of contract cases. And I think a lot of these myths, as we'll see, were developed for overtly ideological or political reasons. And I want to replace this with a more accurate historical narrative. One very prominent myth is that the court was trying to enforce a laissez-faire system on the United States through its liberty of contract decisions. Now, I understand there are some in the audience who think that would have been a great thing, but it doesn't happen to be true. Just to take one obvious example, I could go through all sorts of statistics and data about this, but I think this one will suffice. There were about six cases decided during the so-called Lochner era that involved laws that restricted the maximum hours of work including Lochner. Lochner was decided five to four and invalidated the law in question. Every other maximum hours law that came before the Supreme Court was upheld by the Supreme Court. And there, we could talk about, if in the question and answer period, why Lochner might have been different. One reason I'll throw out to you is that unlike most of those laws, Lochner actually provided criminal penalties. So if you let your worker work for 10 hours and 15 minutes, you could go to jail for that. And that probably struck some of the justices as draconian. But be that as it may, if the court was trying to enforce laissez-faire, it was doing a pretty poor job of it, given that it upheld almost every maximum hours law other than Lochner that came before it. Another myth is that the whole idea that the due process clause protects substantive rights at all originated in the Dred Scott case, Dred Scott v. Stanford, the famous pro-slavery case from right before the Civil War. Robert Bork, for example, in The Tempting of America says that Scott marked, quote, the first appearance in American constitutional law of the concept of what later became known as substantive due process. Now that's just historically wildly inaccurate. First of all, the Supreme Court itself had recognized 
albeit in dicta in the case five years before Dred Scott, that the Due Process Clause protects substantive rights. Secondly, there are a whole series of state Supreme Court and lower court cases, for that matter, that recognized such an interpretation of due process. More importantly, the whole point of this rhetorical tool, trick, whatever you want to call it, used by Bork and others, is to try to associate substantive due process with slavery, and thus with a horrible moral evil, and to suggest that there was some sort of original sin with regard to substantive due process. In fact, if you look historically, it wasn't primarily the pro-slavery forces who were arguing in favor of a substantive interpretation of the Due Process Clause, it was the abolitionists. The abolitionists argued that slavery in the federal territories was unconstitutional because it took the liberty of slaves without due process of law. You couldn't do anything about state-level slavery because the states were not subject to the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause, and we didn't have a 14th Amendment yet. But the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause protected the rights of slaves. As late as 1860, even after Dred Scott, the Republican Party platform of 1860 stated that slavery in federal territories violates the due process laws of slaves, substantive due process. Another myth you may have heard of is that Lochner was a product of judicial formalism, that the court, while maybe well-intentioned, ignored the social and economic conditions facing bakers and other workers in favor of abstract notions of natural rights and liberty of contract. The really odd thing about this criticism of Lochner, and the criticism goes back to 1908 in an article by Roscoe Pound, is that if you read the Lochner opinion carefully, the opinion itself rebuts that particular criticism. Justice Peckham specifically says, quote, in looking through statistics regarding all trades and occupations, it may be true that the trade of Baker does not appear to be as healthy as some other trades and is also vastly more healthy than others. So you could accuse him of a lot of things, but you can't accuse him of ignoring the statistics when he, and the social science data when he explicitly references it, and while some scholars have seemed to think that he was making it up uh, when he said that, if you read Lochner's brief, which I have, the data is right there. There's an appendix that cites it. It turns out that baking wasn't, in fact, any more unhealthful than many other professions, like being a law clerk and other seemingly innocuous professions. The data was right there. Yet another myth that many of us are familiar with is that the Lochner court was indulging in social Darwinism, that they wanted to help the rich and powerful at the expense of the poor and helpless because that's what they thought would be sound evolutionary strategy. But in fact, there's not only no evidence for this beyond a misinterpretation of the Herbert Spencer line that Roger mentioned. Again, I could talk about that more later if anyone's interested. But in fact, historians, I think, have shown pretty conclusively that if there was any social Darwinist on the Supreme Court in 1905, it was Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who of course is best known for dissenting in that case. Another myth and one major reason why liberals have been so hostile to Lochner over the years is that there's been a consistent view that by invalidating labor regulations, the Supreme Court was illustrating its hostility to workers and beneficence towards large corporations. And again, one could go through a large discussion of various cases and all sorts of data about the cases, but let's just look at the example of Lochner itself, given that this is the primary example that people use. In Lochner, it's true that the Baker's Union supported the 10-hour law issue, but it's also true that the large corporate bakery supported the law. There was no conflict between the large corporations and the workers who were supporting the law. They both wanted the law, and they wanted the law at the expense of small immigrant-owned bakeries owned generally by Jews. Jewish and Italian bakers because those bakeries tended to be located in the basements of tenement buildings where they had one big oven and they couldn't work in shifts. They would basically be on call for many hours during the day. They would say, knead the bread, and while they're waiting for it to rise, they would take a rest to the next room. Then they put the bread in the oven and while the bread was baking, they'd take a rest and so on. They'd be on call for 14, 16 hours a day. The big corporate bakeries already were employing their workers for 10 hours or less and they were perfectly happy to have the law. So rather than there being a conflict between the large corporations and the workers, it was actually sort of a conspiracy between the bakery union and their employers against other non-union bakeries. Uh, there was also an element of ethnic prejudice involved in that these new Jewish and Italian immigrants were less popular than the older, more established German immigrants who populate the bakers union. So for example, the New York State factory inspector said that it was a good thing that the 
Jewish and Italian bakeries are being closed down by this law because, quote, cleanliness and tidiness are entirely foreign to these people. And this is a slide of my immigrant Jewish uh, great-grandparents who look quite clean and tidy. Thank you. <laughs> Beyond these specific myths, there's a more general mythology that posits that the justices who supported liberty of contract were evil reactionaries who influ whose influence on American law has been expunged and instead we have adopted the progressive view of law which shifted from a focus on property rights and contract rights to a focus on civil liberties and civil rights as it should be according to the story. But in fact, the progressive opponents of liberty of contract evince little interest in civil rights and civil liberties, and it was the Lochner line of cases that pioneered protections of the rights of African Americans, the rights of women, and the rights uh, to such civil liberties as to the right to send your child to uh, private school if you so desired. Progressive commentators typically opposed all of these decisions. The only area in which they were even arguably more sympathetic to individual rights than their conservative quote-unquote opponents was freedom of speech. The mass uprising that began in Tunisia has since spread throughout the Arab world, spurring Hosni Mubarak's downfall in Egypt and Muammar Gaddafi's crackdown and the subsequent NATO intervention in Libya. Given these momentous events, will more Arab governments respond to demands for reform? Cato Research Fellow Stanley Kober discussed the Arab awakening at the Cato Institute in May. In October 1789, President George Washington sent a letter to Governor Morris, who was in Paris to succeed Thomas Jefferson as ambassador. The revolution, which has been effected in France, if so wonderful in nature, that the mind can hardly realize the fact, he wrote. If it ends, as our last accounts to the 1st of August predict, that nation will be the most powerful and happy in Europe. But Washington worried that it would not end so well. I fear, though it has gone triumphantly through the first paroxysm, it is not the last it has to encounter before matters are finally settled. To forbear running from one extreme to another is no easy matter. And should this be the case, rocks and shelves not visible at present may wreck the vessel. Washington's caution turned out to be justified. The French Revolution, far from installing a peaceful democracy, led to a reign of terror and wars that lasted for decades. So far, the Arab Spring has been welcomed for its democratic potential. But as Washington observed, a pendulum that swings far in one direction has a tendency to swing violently back in the other direction. In this regard, Egypt deserves special attention, since it will likely set the course for the entire region. On March 8th, a celebration of International Women's Day that was to be held in Tahrir Square, the site of the revolution, was broken up. I thought we were going to be celebrated as women of the revolution because we were present during the days of Tahrir, said one participant. Instead, an eyewitness reported they were running for their lives and the army had to fire a shot in the air to break up the mob chasing them. It is bad enough that the feeling of solidarity that had characterized the demonstrations evaporated so quickly, raising questions about how authentic it was. Even more is this subsequent role of the army. The day after the demonstration, the army, which had taken over security functions, cleared Tahrir Square, detaining almost 200 people. They didn't give us a chance to speak, said one. They used an electric prod whenever we tried to speak. When one of the women repeated the Tahrir Square mantra, the army and the people are one, she was told, no, the military is above the nation. A similar situation exists with regard to Egypt's Christian Coptic minority. During the demonstrations in Tahrir, Copts and Muslims have provided an inspiring example of interfaith cooperation. And it must be noted that some of that spirit has endured. For example, leading presidential candidates Amr Moussa and Mohamed al-Baradeh attended Easter services along with senior military officials in a public display of support. Yet there are also disturbing signs the unity is framed. In the city of Tana, protests have erupted 
against the appointment of a Coptic governor. The issues now are worse than in the past, says Nagib Gabriel, a Coptic lawyer and head of the Egyptian Federation of Human Rights. In the past, there were problems, but there were long periods between them. But after the revolution, every day we are seeing new things. Gabriel reports receiving 70 calls a week from people who want to emigrate. They are insisting on leaving Egypt because the risks of staying here are too great. The tolerance that characterized the Tahrir Square demonstration was also absent during the recent constitutional referendum. When Mohammed al-Baradai tried to vote, he was attacked by a mob throwing stones and prevented from casting his ballot. We don't want an American agent, one of them explained. Baradai subsequently complained that, quote, holding referendum in absence of law and order is an irresponsible act, unquote. Significantly, Baraday has also questioned the role of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, which now rules Egypt. Describing Egypt as being in a, quote, political and constitutional mess, unquote, he has expressed uncertainty whether the presidential elections will be held as scheduled. Perhaps the most disturbing aspect of the SCAF, the acronym for the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, obviously, is its foreign policy purposely distinguishing itself from Mubarak. SCAF has sought to improve relations with Iran while downgrading the United States and Israel. That might ordinarily be considered normal. New governments frequently rebalance a previous government's foreign policy. But these are not normal times, and three aspects of the new policy need to be considered. First, if the revolution is so democratic, it is curious that it would make its initial overtures to Iran a regime that has suppressed its own democratic movement over the last two years. SCAF also appears to be supporting the Syrian regime, which is brutally crushing resistance to its rule. Egypt has introduced amendments to a proposed UN Human Rights Council resolution, according to which the council should not condemn the bloody governmental crackdown on peaceful protests in Syria. Radwan Ziada, a Syrian human rights activist, has claimed Egypt should not support Assad. Second, Iran's relations with its Arab neighbors are deteriorating. Last month, the Gulf Cooperation Council called on the international community, I'm quoting the international community and the Security Council to take the necessary measures to stop flagrant Iranian interference and provocation aimed at sowing discord and destruction, unquote, among its members. Shortly before, Kuwait had expelled three Iranian diplomats and recalled its ambassador from Tehran after a court had found a direct link between a spy ring and Iran's revolutionary guards. This last point is important because a couple of years ago, Egypt had itself arrested several people linked to Iran. At the beginning of the Egyptian revolution, they escaped from prison. Hailing the escape, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, said, Hezbollah thanks the revolution, which helped Sami Chahab one of the um, escapees, get out of prison in Egypt. Hamas prisoners also escaped and made their way back to Gaza. Interestingly, the escape of these prisoners does not seem to be an issue for SCAF. Finally, there is the issue of the peace treaty with Israel. Shortly after Mubarak was removed from power, General Mohsen al-Fangari, speaking for the new regime, announced that the Arab Republic of Egypt is committed to all regional and international obligations and treaties. Yet the Camp David Treaty has come into question. Presidential candidate and democracy activist Ayman Noor has said that in practice, the Camp David Accords have come to an end and he has called for a referendum. According to a recent survey by the Pew Global Attitudes Project, quote, a slim majority of Egyptians want to annul the peace treaty with Israel. Revolutions typically begin with high hopes and a burst of idealism, but they tend to go through several stages as competing factions vie for power. If we contrast the success of the American Revolution with others that veer toward extremism, two factors stand out. One is the character of the people who lead it. If they are not interested in personal power, if their focus is the creation of enduring institutions to limit abuses of power, the revolution can witness, in Abraham Lincoln's words, a new birth of freedom. But as Crane Brinton observed in his classic, The Anatomy of Revolution, quote, 
In the politics of revolutions, what counts is the ability to move swiftly, to make clear and final decisions, to push through to a goal without regard for injured human dispositions, unquote. In these circumstances, fanatics displace moderates, and achieving power becomes an end in itself, rather than a means for achieving democratic reforms. The second is the immediate international environment. If that is characterized by violence, if external powers vie for influence, the revolutions are more likely to run aground. In this regard, the confrontation between Saudi Arabia, by extension the GCC, and Iran is emerging as a major issue. Unfortunately, if there is one part of the world filled with rocks and shelves, it is the Middle East. The Supreme Court has found a fundamental right of marriage more than a dozen times, including the famous case of Loving v. Virginia. And as long as the government remains in the business of providing government-bestowed benefits based on marriage, it's time that gay marriages be given equal protection. That's the argument from attorneys Theodore Olson, David Boyas, and Cato Institute Chairman Bob Levy. Olson and Boyas are representing plaintiffs in the case of Perry v. Schwarzenegger, which may eventually find its way to the Supreme Court. All three spoke at the Cato Institute in June. First up, Ted Olson. The trial itself went 12 days. We put on various different witnesses, including expert witnesses about the history of discrimination, what has been like in this country, psychologists that testified about the types of discrimination that take place and the damage that it's done, the statistics with respect to marriage in other countries where there has been permission of same-sex marriages or marriages to persons of the same sex, marriage equality, all kinds of things like that expert witnesses testified to. It was a remarkable education. One of the things I thought when you were talking, David, about police rounding up people in bars, it was, I think many of you know, against the law in many places to serve an alcoholic beverage in a public place to a person who was gay. Against the law. The person who served that drink and the person who received that drink in a bar could go to jail. It was in the United States, President Eisenhower announced that someone who was gay could not hold a federal position, a federal a job working for the federal government. The history of discrimination is quite unpleasant to reflect on in this country. And it's a part of discrimination with respect to marriage. We put on evidence about what the history of marriage and how race was used as a basis to deny people the right to marry. Slaves were prevented from marrying because that would be a sign of their independence. And when the Emancipation Proclamation was announced, slaves flocked to get married because that meant that they were independent. We had all of those witnesses and findings of fact with respect to that. Everybody in America should see that. And so that is an important part of what's going on today. The district court very thoughtfully went through all of that and rendered a decision that the Proposition 8 denied to individuals the fundamental right to marry and the equal protection of the laws. Just another word or two. The fundamental right to marry, 14 times the United States Supreme Court has announced that there is a fundamental right under the Constitution to marry. That is a component of liberty, of privacy, the right to associate, and the right to identify oneself spiritually, and various other reasons. The Supreme Court has never said it's a right to marry someone of the opposite sex, nor did the Supreme Court ever decide that it was a right to marry someone of the same race. Because as, as we heard just a few moments ago, in 1967, in Loving versus Virginia, the United States Supreme Court struck down Virginia's law and the laws of 14 other states that prohibited people of a different race from marrying one another. We pointed out during the course of the trial that in 1967, after the president was born, his parents, if they had gotten married in Virginia and other states, would have been committing a felony. So the court has systematically struck down limitations on the right to marry, including the right to marry someone of the opposite sex, to marry a person if you are in prison, and various other different things. So we're talking about a fundamental right, which is being denied to a large segment of the American society. We asked, and I'll close on this, what 
reason does California and Californians have to deny this right to its citizens, to prevent people from entering into this relationship? Because if you're going to deny people a right, the right of association or the right of privacy, the right to be married like other people, what reason does, does California, what justification exists? And basically, our opponents could not put on any evidence to persuade the judge that there was a good reason to do this. In fact, several times during one part of the case, during motions for summary judgment, the judge said, well, what harm would it do to Californians or people of heterosexual orientation if people of the same sex were to be married? And our opponent didn't want to answer that question, and he tried to avoid the question, and the judge says no answer the question, what harm will it do to heterosexual marriage if people of the same sex get married? And our opponent, who was a very good lawyer, looked at the judge, paused and said, I don't know. Now, we do know that marriage is a very important institution and that the word marriage means a great deal. Civil unions are not the same. Domestic partnerships are not the same. The institution of marriage means a great deal. Our opponents kept saying that it is so important, the institution of marriage and the right to call yourself married is so important, we have to hold it back from people who wish to marry of the same sex because it would dilute and weaken the institution of marriage if people of the same sex were allowed to participate. Well, that is the point. The word marriage, the institution of marriage, what it means in this country isn't simply a legal thing. It is a social construct that is important in this country. And the example that I like to use is citizenship. What if you were told by your government that because you came from a certain national origin, that you could be all the things that a citizen could be, you could vote, you could travel, you could do own property, you could do everything, but you couldn't call yourself a citizen you wouldn't be a citizen. And if you can't be married in this country, you are being left out of a very, very important component of what our society respects and reveres. And we are telling people when we put a restriction of that nature in the constitution of the state, the biggest state in the United States, that these people are different. They're not entitled to the same respect. They're not entitled to the same dignity. They're not entitled to equality. They are separate and they are different, and they're somehow second-class citizens. They are not the same, they are not okay, and that is a state-instituted license to discriminate, to harass, to bully, and to do great damage. That's what we're trying to overcome, and that's what Proposition 8 case is all about. Next, attorney David Boyas. Suppose that the state simply got out of the business of licensing marriages. They allowed you to enter into an arrangement, essentially as a matter of contract, to determine how you'd live together, how property would be divided, inherited, how children would be raised. And it allowed every religious institution to decide what kind of sacrament of marriage, if any, they were going to use. The government would be out of the marriage business, and you would not have an issue of equal protection. Because equal protection and due process arises when you have state action. In this case, the state action of deciding we are going to license marriages and we are going to license only a certain kind of marriage. In order to attack that state-sponsored discrimination, we said at trial that we wanted to establish three things. One, we wanted to establish that marriage was a fundamental right. And that was really common ground between the plaintiffs and the defendants in this case. Both sides agreed that marriage is a fundamental right. And they could hardly have said otherwise because marriage is much more than living together. It's much more than procreation. It's much more than any individual attribute of it because you can take away all of those attributes and you still have a relationship that has such significance to human liberty and human dignity that you cannot deprive even imprisoned felons, even people who are locked away for the rest of their lives from entering into marriage. So the idea that marriage was a fundamental right 
and it was a right that was inherent in principles of liberty and association, rights of human dignity, was taken, I think, by both sides as a given in the case. The second thing we set out to prove was that depriving gay and lesbian citizens of the right to marry seriously harmed them and seriously harmed the children that they're raising. Hundreds of thousands of children in California, millions of children in the United States, are being raised today by gay and lesbian couples. And we said, we're going to prove that the state prohibiting those couples from getting married not only harms those couples, but harms the children that they're raising. And we prove that. We prove that, as Ted said, with a wealth of statistical and analytical data. We had child psychologists, experts. We had sociologists. We had anthropologists. We had statisticians. We had economists. All coming in and demonstrating the harm that forbidding marriage had. And we didn't stop there because the other side identified a number of expert witnesses. In fact, they started out with eight experts, just like we did. Six of those experts, after we took their depositions, they dropped them because those experts admitted what we were saying. They admitted that depriving gay and lesbian citizens of the right to marry seriously harmed them and their children. And one of the things that was interesting was that we played at trial the tapes that we took during the depositions of their experts. We introduced them in an uh, interesting uh, argument. They objected to our playing some of these tapes on the grounds that the person wasn't really an expert. <laughs> and the evidence for them not being really an expert was that they had disagreed with their point of view. They lost that argument. The witness that they did put on the stand on cross-examination again admitted that depriving gay and lesbian citizens of the right to marry harmed them and harmed their children in significant ways. The third thing that we set out to prove was that there was no benefit to anybody by depriving gays and lesbians from marrying. The defense had sort of started out saying, well, gays and lesbians really don't need to marry. They've got civil unions. When they lost that part of it, they fell back on the argument, well, you've got to be careful because maybe this will harm the institution of heterosexual marriage. Now, if you think about that a little bit, there's a certain common sense gap that exists. I ask uh, those of you who, like me, have children who have either just gotten married or are in the process of considering getting married, and whether you think it would dissuade them if they learned that their gay and lesbian couple down the street were able to get married. Or for those of you who are married at the present time, whether you would decide, well, let's get divorced because now gays and lesbians are going to get married in this, in this state. So I think that there's a, a certain common sense gap there. Lawyers spend a lot of their time proving things that are common sense because that's what, that's what one of the things we do in court. And again, we brought in a wealth of evidence that there was no harm. And again, on cross-examination, even the defendant's own expert witnesses conceded that they had no evidence of harm. And finally, Cato Institute Chairman Bob Levy. The key question, and it was raised by David Boys in his remarks, is why is it that government should be involved at all in the marriage business? It should not. For most of Western history, marriage was a matter of private contract between the betrothed parties. Marriage today could very well follow that tradition. It should be a private arrangement requiring minimal or no 
government intervention. Some religious or secular institutions would recognize gay marriages. Others uh, would not. Still others would call them domestic partnerships. Join whichever group you wish to join. No one would have to join any group and no group would have to adopt a definition that members of the group found to be offensive. The rights and the responsibilities of the partners would be governed by personally tailored contracts, consensual bargains like those that control most of the interactions among people in a, a free society. Government benefits, to the extent that they are dispensed and to the extent that obligations are imposed by government, that could be just as easily triggered by other objective criteria, leaving the definition of marriage in the hands of private institutions. The qualifying criterion might be, for example, an affidavit identifying the partner, certifying that the partnership is intended to be exclusive and permanent within a common residence with shared responsibilities. It's not necessary to key benefits to marriage, and in fact, 60% of Fortune 500 companies now extend benefits to domestic partners. Now, that's the ideal. Regrettably, however, government has interceded, enacting more than 1,000 federal laws and who knows how many state laws dealing with issues like taxes and child custody and inheritance. And whenever government imposes obligations or dispenses benefits, the Constitution is implicated. And the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment says that no state may deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That provision, of course, is the relevant constitutional issue when it comes to same-sex marriage. And I must say that that is where conservatives and libertarians sometimes part company. And I want to explore that parting of company by looking at two particular topics. One is federalism, and the other is this issue of, of fundamental rights. First, with respect to federalism, why don't we simply leave same-sex marriage question up to each state? You may know that from the get-go, at the time of the framing, the Constitution only applied to the federal government. The First Amendment, for example, says Congress shall make no law. It says nothing about the states. We learned over 80 years that the states can be every bit as tyrannical as the feds, slavery being the case in point, and so we fought a civil war. We passed some post-Civil War amendments, including the 14th. And the 14th Amendment effectively makes the Bill of Rights and other provisions in the Constitution applicable against the states. For the first time, the federal government could intervene if the states violated constitutionally secured rights. And that significantly altered the balance between state and federal governments. Although the states have broad discretion in fashioning rules for same-sex marriage, the U.S. Constitution sets the outer limit. So federalism, for example, surely allows some states to recognize same-sex marriages while other states opt to privatize all marriages and still others call all marriages domestic partnerships. But the states may not discriminate as between same-sex and opposite-sex unions without justification, and none has been shown. If the states discriminate by recognizing heterosexual but not homosexual marriages, federalism does not excuse compliance with the Equal Protection Clause, and that is the crucial change to federalism rooted in ratification of the 14th Amendment. And I think somewhat hypocritically, the same conservatives who invoke federalism to argue for Proposition 8 proposed in May of 2003 the Federal Marriage Amendment, which defines marriage throughout the country as the union of a man and a woman. That amendment prohibits states from recognizing same-sex marriages within their own borders, even if desired by the state's citizens. And it also bars the legal incidence of marriage, such as civil unions and domestic partnership. That regime would be fundamentally at odds with principles of federalism. Next, consider this issue of fundamental rights that, again, both David and Ted mentioned. Since the New Deal, the courts have rigorously reviewed government regulations only if they infringe on a fundamental right. And to qualify as fundamental, a right either has to be implicit in the concept of ordered liberty or deeply rooted in our nation's traditions and culture. And how that right is defined, narrowly or broadly, makes all the difference and can even dictate the outcome of the case. 
Some conservatives argue that the right to same-sex marriage doesn't meet the criteria for a fundamental right, and therefore, the courts should defer to the legislature. Well, I'd like to talk about two cases that address this question. The first case is Raish V. Gonzalez. A sick person claimed a fundamental right to use medical marijuana in California where the use of such narcotic is legal, and she had, in fact, a doctor's order. The Court of Appeals characterized the right as the use of narcotics for medical purposes. So Mrs. Raish lost because medical marijuana, said the court, is not indeed required for ordered liberty, nor is it deeply rooted in our nation's traditions and culture. Suppose the court had adopted Ms. Raish's characterization of the right, and that is the liberty to pursue a less painful life without infringing on the rights of anyone else. She would have won that case. And for a contrary example, consider the case of Lawrence v. Texas in which the Supreme Court overturned a Texas law that criminalized consensual homosexual sodomy. Texas lost that case. Why? Because the court characterized this relationship between two men as being within the liberty of persons to choose. Suppose the court had said that this right is simply about the right to practice gay sex. The right would not have been deemed fundamental. Which characterization is correct? The nasty little secret of constitutional law is that in part, both of them are correct. Raish was indeed trying to live with less pain, and she was also using medical marijuana. Lawrence was pursuing a private consensual relationship. He was also engaged in gay sex. And similarly, Chris Perry's right in Perry v. Schwarzenegger could be characterized narrowly as marrying another woman, which might not be considered deeply rooted in our traditions, or it could be characterized as Ted and David and ultimately Judge Walker did, as choosing a spouse and forming a household, which would be deeply rooted. So sometimes courts can rule based on how it is that they describe the right. And that is, in the libertarian view, the foolishness of bifurcating our rights into fundamental and non-fundamental categories. All rights, enumerated, unenumerated, fundamental, non-fundamental, should be rigorously protected by the courts. And that is the view of most libertarians. Too often, it is not the view of many conservatives. So from liberals, with all due respect to Mr. Podesta, we sometimes get too much government, an enlargement of state power. And from conservatives, with all due respect to Ted Olson, uh, we sometimes get too few freedoms, protection of some, but not all, of our constitutionally secured rights. The left and the right are selectively indignant about the proper role of government. Uh, that reflects, I think, an inconsistency among both liberals and conservatives on their views of rights and powers. Libertarians, by contrast, have a consistent, I'd call it minimalist, view of the proper role of government. We want government out of our wallets and out of our bedrooms. Libertarians view the powers of government very narrowly, the rights of individuals very broadly, and that, of course, was precisely the vision of the framers. Cato scholar Walter Olson's new book, Schools for Misrule, reveals how law schools are increasingly turning into hatcheries of ideas that are bad for America and can negatively impact our lives. Schools for Misrule has received rave reviews from Publishers Weekly and newspapers across the country and is available for purchase at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.